This is a STEAM Channel program on UCTV. Go full STEAM ahead at uctv.tv slash STEAM, where science, technology, engineering, arts, and math converge. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Into the Impossible. In this episode on innovation, we're going to be talking to two of the co-founders of Additive Rocket Corporation. I'd first like to introduce Riley Weeks. Uh, hello, Riley. Hi. Uh, as, as Stuart said, my name is Riley Weeks. I'm the Chief Science Officer of the Additive Rocket Corporation. Um, I'm a former Northrop Grumman engineer and I'm currently working on my PhD here at UC San Diego. And we have Kyle Adriani. Kyle, Hi. tell us a little bit about yourself. You're the Chief Technology Officer. That's right. That's right. Kyle Adriani, CTO, uh, co-founder of ARC, uh, got my BS in physics, materials physics uh, from here, UCSD as well. So uh, why don't I start with uh, Riley. Tell us, how did this company come come about? How did you come up with the idea? Uh, that's a great question. Um, it all started when uh, we were originally members of the on-campus group at UC San Diego, SEDS, um, where we took part in the first ever uh, 3D printed rocket engine produced by a, a college group. Um, and in working through that, we ended up meeting a, a lot of industry who were interested in the technology and the innovation that went into 3D printing an engine. And we started having more ideas of where we could take the engine tech from sort of this traditional idea to something no one has ever seen before. And that's kind of how we got our start. And uh, Kyle, uh, how did you get involved? Uh, yeah, so I... I uh founded the company, of course, with Riley and, and one of our other co-founders, Andy Kitiwong, uh, was actually my roommate. We were randomly paired up. We knew we were going to get into trouble somehow and do something. Uh, we didn't know it would be this bad. So we, we uh, uh, yeah, we were working together in clubs and, and all sorts of things. And then we decided to start this up. So it, So what essentially you're doing is you're disrupting an entire industry and you're uh, you found a way to essentially manufacture rocket engines in a in a new, uh, innovative way that that could, I suppose, you could say, disrupt the entire uh, industry of how they're made today. So, Riley, tell us a little bit about that. How, how, what is it that you've you've innovated here? So, uh, interestingly enough, the three D printing itself is not necessarily the innovation. Uh, there's a couple other companies out there who are doing the actual three D printing aspect. Uh, SpaceX three D prints portions or uh, entire uh, engines. Uh, Rocket Lab also prints their engines, and there's a couple other companies who are doing the printing aspect. Um, where we innovate is in leveraging new designs that the three D printing makes available to us. Um, these other companies that are 3D printing, they're sticking with the traditional ideas. Uh, for instance, there's a SpaceX engine that is almost directly from the Apollo era, almost the exact same design. They're just 3D printing it now. Uh, whereas we have, have seen that 3D printing allows us to take uh, much more organic and free approaches to how we design our engines. And so we're leveraging that to produce lower costs, more efficient, um, and overall just better engines for the space industry. So here's a, a, a photo of one of your engines. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, absolutely. So this is our flagship engine. It's the Nemesis engine is what we called it, named because it was a real pain to get going, but <laughs> we got there. Um, so 
what the photo doesn't necessarily show is what's going on on the inside. The outside is more or less standard. There's definitely some features that are only really 3D printable, mainly that it's a single piece engine, which was brand new when we first developed this. But inside we have passages and uh, cooling channels, uh, fluid delivery systems that are only possible with 3D printing. They leverage a biomimetic approach and course through the engine, similar to how blood vessels course through the body or how uh, tree roots course through the earth. There's a various uh, biological an analogies one could use. Um, and we found that these biomimetic geometries are more efficient and generally better in, in uh, the situations that we put them in. So, so uh, uh, maybe I'll ask Kyle about this one. So here's another image of what might be kind of your biomimetic. Right. Uh, it almost looks like a capillary system. That's right. That's right. So all, all of these are like more showcase projects to just show how far you can take this additive manufacturing. Like Riley said, we, we get a couple more uh, areas of, of design freedom uh, that we can leverage when we're designing a part for additive manufacturing, which is exactly what we have done for that, which was a heat exchanger as well as the uh, engine shown previously. Just for um, scale, uh, I do have a an image of it in, in, in the hand here so you can kind of see that heat exchanger. Uh, it's exquisitely, uh, some parts of it are exquisitely fine. Right, right. It's it's both uh, complex and simple at the same time. So it's, uh, the, the basis for those sorts of geometries are, they're modeled after fractals, much as uh, much of the body, like capillaries are. Uh, this one in particular kind of mimics that heat exchange that you would see uh, just like chemical exchange oxygen exchange via capillaries or uh, heat exchange in other organisms, salmon sharks, uh, come to mind as well. Here's one that uh, you can see the, this is the, the bottom. That's the top. This is the top. Okay. Yeah, that's the injector portion of uh, one of our more recent concept engines. And, and, and describe this a little bit. What's it, what am I looking at? So, so you're looking at uh, around the outside uh, mounting points and then on the inside some uh, channels branching out uh, in, a, in a very specific pattern to uh, plumb up an engine for injection. And so, so tell us a little bit more about the uh, uh, your role and and the, the I mean part of the technology here that you're refining or perfecting is how you use the uh, manufacturing techniques. That's right. That's right. So the the uh, added manufacturing techniques there are a bunch, and they some of them have been been around longer than others and have different levels of maturity and capability. Uh, the big one that's really reached the uh, become industry standard here and has been adopted by a lot of uh, companies uh, to various degrees of success has been uh, direct metal laser sintering, a powder bed uh, added manufacturing method where all your parts are completely encased in powder. Uh, 20 to 40 micron layers of powder are laid down one after another and each cross section is traced out uh, by a laser system above much like this the system you're seeing here. Um, and so that allows us to, it takes quite a bit of time, but we can build up extraordinarily complex parts uh, that you couldn't make any other way, are very difficult to design in and of themselves. Uh, Riley knows better than anybody. But also unlock some huge performance benefits uh, 
massive reductions in weight, improved uh, heat transfer capability, uh, lower head loss for fluid systems, more control uh, over really all those values, uh, more specific and, and dialed in uh, capability. I recently got to got to see it myself, and here you can see a picture of me. My jaw is dropping as I'm <laughs> watching this thing work. It, it looks, it looks like it's it's just magic how the um, the machine, the laser beams, lay down uh, the layers. It's fusing these tiny uh, spheres. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's called laser scintillation, correct? Centering. Yeah. Centering. Yeah, which is which is a little bit of a misnomer. It's it is melting. Mm -hmm. uh, they're they're used interchangeably in uh, in this industry as opposed to what what is uh, typically considered sintering. But yeah, it's melting. Uh, it's taking powder, uh, melting, fusing it together to get a nearly fully dense part. So tell us a little bit about, about where the company is at now, and and um, you've been in business uh, a few years, three, yeah, three, three, four, three years, three. and. What's the status of it? Yeah, so we're we're uh, we're growing. Mm -hmm. uh, we've we've turned over kind of the leaf from being purely R and on the R and D side, which we were for about a year and a half at the outstart, uh, to of course bring in that that uh, industry standard metal printer, uh, really building up our capabilities and uh, uh, making revenue. Which is, of course, rare for rare for startups. Yeah, yeah. almost reaching, uh, hitting the black. In terms yeah, we're of close. Turning a profit, we're really close, which is pretty huge. And uh, the, the, so you got some news uh, recently. I guess you've done a couple of uh, um, test firings right. of the rocket. And I Absolutely. guess I, here's a here's a here's a shot of a static firing of uh, the your current model. Mm -hmm. So what's going on here? So right there, uh, that was one of those showcase engines that, that we showed uh, prior. And we're really just putting it through its paces and also running it outside of standard operating conditions. Uh, higher pressure uh, off of the ideal mixture ratio in both directions uh, for, the, for the fuel and the oxidizer. And uh, one of the big things we really wanted to see out of this was just how uh, well-performing our cooling systems would be. So across all of those tests, uh, at the on the outside of the engine at the hottest point uh, where we expected to hit probably like five or 600 C. At least. Um, we didn't get above uh, 170, right? 176. 176 C was our max temperature. Uh, so <laughs> we, we, uh, we were very, very pleased with with uh, that performance, uh, we were glad that our conservative estimates <laughs> stacked up yeah. in the right way to uh, to help us out. But that what that really means for us, uh, one is uh, we have really a new baseline, not only that we can leverage for customers that we're working with on designs, but also information we can make available to our customers so that they know uh, we can reduce weight dramatically, uh, improve performance of thermal systems, and uh, all around push push these parts to the next level. So that's what we're really excited about. In case uh, 
people want to see that there's a I think there we different, go different is that is that the same model no that's that's uh the most recent one so that when you're holding it there uh had just come out of the printer I think two days prior yeah. So you can see how big it is. It's not very big. No. Uh, it's very compact. Mm-hmm. Packs and, a punch. Oh, yeah. And this one has a, a, a pattern, a, a grid, um, sort of a spiral grid pattern. That's right. So is that part of the cooling? Uh, that's part of the cooling. And, and the reason that you see that exposed, that's atypical. Uh, it's exposed just because we're carving out every little bit of weight uh, that we possibly can out of the engine. Um, uh where, where most of those uh, features that you see would just kind of be encased in material. Mm-hmm. It, much like the, that engine and others, you, don't, you can't really uh, see too much of them. Uh, we've really stripped away all that excess material. So, so this shot was one, maybe it's a prior version that doesn't have that mm-hmm. taken away. Yep. And uh, I think you said it was 2,000 pounds of thrust in that little thing? Uh, in, in the other one you were holding, yeah. Yeah. That 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 is uh, an impressive wallop, (laughs) (laughs) and no moving parts, right? No moving parts. Uh, You you may put a a pump or some other systems upstream of this. Uh, uh, Some of that, you know, we we have uh, comfort zone with uh, some components where we we typically don't touch too much of, but we're doing some work uh, with an increasing number of, of those. Uh, additional upstream systems. This the engines are really the last step in the process. We saw that as a good place to one make a mark, uh, and two that was really uh, ready for a bunch of optimization. And that's not all you make. You showed me a, a, a bunch of other parts. That's right. Which is uh, kind of part of your business, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we we act uh, not only as as a design. Uh, design and manufacturing group, uh, but it's really the the very high end uh, parts where you, where you need it to come out just so, uh, where we really excel. So so a good number of our customers have said, "Hey, this this thing you made for me is great. Can you also make this? Can you also make that?" Uh, and of course, like like uh, most young and ambitious uh, guys, we have trouble saying no. Yeah. So, so we, we do them and we found that we, uh, we do a pretty good job and we do it. Uh, uh, we found that we've, we've been very successful at that and uh, doing it in a quick turn fashion. So uh, I guess I'll address this to you you're the, or the scientist in the, in the, in the team. Mm-hmm. We happen to be doing this on, as you pointed out, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo launch, uh, Apollo 11 launch. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's interesting that rocket motors haven't changed that much, right? I mean, there's, there's it's just a matter of scale. This is mm-hmm. kind of a major leap. So, so what's the science behind what you're doing to to get to the next level of spaceflight? That's a that's a great question. Um, it all roots in basically the the next level of simulation capabilities that we have. So, in the original. Uh, Apollo era uh, and rockets and uh, of that time, they were doing things through basic experimentation. So they found something that worked and they stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've, we've stuck with. And the basics of how a rocket engine works are pretty much never going to change, right? It's all the, the, the fundamentals are going to be there. It's how we get to those fundamental stages that's going to change. And so with new computational resources, new simulation capabilities, it allows us to do these 
most minute of, of changes and tweaks to see if we can squeeze just a little bit more performance out of it that we've leveraged to create these models. And then 3D printing allows us to, to create them. Right. So the, these sure. sorts of these sorts of engines, just to go off of Riley's point, are very sensitive to the smallest little design tweaks, have a huge impact. Uh, and so we we not only have control of them in the design uh, and via manufacturing, but we can also simulate their effects leveraging cloud and supercomputing uh, to rapidly iterate through thousands of possibilities. We're kind of going through a, a renaissance of spaceflight because of private space industry, especially at Windows SpaceX. There's a couple other companies. Maybe you could mention them. Mm-hmm. Are those your customers? What's, what, do you, what do you think is the future look like, uh, the right. near future, and maybe you know five to ten years out? Right. Well, we, we won't talk about uh, any of our customers specifically and, mm-hmm. and what, what they are doing because they wouldn't appreciate that. Wouldn't but know. the uh, – if we're talking about the commercial uh, small launch industry, there was just an explosion over the past two years, uh, where two to three, where it went from uh, SpaceX and, and uh, Blue. Blue Origin and Rocket Lab and a couple others too. Uh, I think it hit at the peak 116 uh, small startups saying they're making launch vehicles and raising money. And some of them raised a tremendous amount of money mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. Uh, since then, it's been enough time for a couple of those to fizzle off, but I think more than anybody expected have stuck around. Yep. Uh, and and they're uh, they're going along with various degrees of success, exploring a lot of different business models and launch strategies around those. Everything from uh, from traditional what you think of what SpaceX does, you mm-hmm. staged launch. You know their unique aspect is reusability uh, to Groups trying to do single stage to orbit, to taking an atmospheric balloon and launching out of that, uh, to piggybacking off hypersonic vehicles, which are kind of dovetailing with the whole industry as well. So we're seeing those wide range of applications. Sea launch as well. Yeah, sea launch. That's, that's is another one. And that's interesting. Uh, that's an area where we we found that that we fit in well uh, because whereas groups where uh, they're really just doing the traditional launch that's already – a lot of those problems have already been solved. They're trying to do it more efficiently. So the engines are uh, their biggest element. And so it makes sense for them to do those themselves. Uh, other groups where they're revolutionizing in 10 other ways uh, the launch process, the engines are not necessarily where they want to uh, be spending their time and resources. And they prefer to go to a group that has expect, uh, uh really an expertise in manufacturing uh, those components or or uh, taking what they have and optimizing it for manufacturing, which is oftentimes the case of where we've been in. So what is uh, next? Where, 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 where are you – what are you planning? What are you scheming and planning? <laughs> we can't tell you that. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, short term? We're, we're actually looking to begin expanding into a new facility right. in the next maybe six months or so. We're hoping for end of Q4, beginning uh, of Q1 Ideally next year. before the end of the year, we'll try. Yeah. Um, and when we move there, we're planning to bring in more uh, more machines, uh, more additive machines, as well as some subtractive machines for finishing and, and uh, stuff like that. 
Um, but the the biggest thing is we're, we're trying to add on uh, more more and more customers in the aerospace industry, design more and more engines, um, and that's that's going to be longer term, mostly because each one of those contracts is going to be like six months long. Um, that's right. But that's 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 the basic overview of where we're going. Can uh, you continue to vet out our technology and possibly come up with some some new uh, interesting things to add into rocket engines? But yeah, <laughs> that's kind of where we're headed. And what do both of you think about the uh, you know the future of uh, you discussed this this uh, incredible explosion of private space? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. A lot of people are talking about it. we're going to go back to the the moon is a is a major point of discussion. Mm-hmm. Should we go back? Why are we going back? Um, and other people are talking more about the SpaceX uh, launch of a thousand microsats. Right. Mm. Uh, we talk about cube cube labs. Right. Um, there's a cube lab going up. Uh, the Clark Center is involved in the board mission, which is launching uh, mm-hmm. in a couple of days uh, to the International Space Station. Uh, the Brain Organoid Advanced Research and Development Project. Um, what do you guys think? Is it is right. it, 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 it are, are you going to start? Looking at bigger engines, are your engines uh, designed for more satellite kind of things? And right. where, do you, where do you think space is headed? In general? Yeah, so I'd lump it into a couple of categories. You mentioned some uh, research-based items, uh, which are all very exciting. And you also have more exploration-based to Mars uh, and really the human proliferation of either uh, another in-space habitat or expanding in-space habitats, uh, or colonizing the moon, Mars, all of that. Uh, then you have asteroid uh, mining-type missions, and you have more more immediate and applicable to our everyday lives, constellations that are providing uh, necessary and very valuable services back to uh, everybody on the planet. And Riley, do you have any, uh, any other thoughts on that? Um, I mean, from a business perspective, in terms of how we fit into each of these different groups, we think we found the the thrusters that most people are interested in. Uh, personally, I want to build the biggest one we possibly can. I want to make the F one look like a child's toy. Um, probably not really feasible in the near future. <laughs> t- t- tell us what the the F one is. Uh, the F one is one of the five main engines on the Saturn V that carried the Apollo program uh, to the moon. Uh, notable for being the largest and most powerful single combustion chamber engine ever produced. I believe it produced about 1.5 million pounds of thrust. Compare that to our current engines that are all around the 1,000 to 5,000 pound force thrust range. So it's a little bigger. But I want to go even bigger. Make them huge. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, any, any closing thoughts or uh, do you want to mention about you know, arc or your journey. Um, I mean, both of you came out of UCSD and, um, you got involved in, um, the startup scene here. And, uh, how did you end up at the, uh, Qualcomm innovation space and what was your experience like? Right. When we, when we were starting, uh, there was one rocket club on campus. Now there are three. Yeah. And there was one, uh, graduate and faculty-based startup uh, incubator type thing. Since then, I think there uh, are have been almost six 
that have existed just on this campus alone. We've seen that uh, that trend mimicked uh, across the company, uh, country at, at big, uh, big and small universities as well of uh, really a lot of some of the most capable uh, students going into startups as opposed to other pursuits where, where they, uh, they feel they can make the biggest difference in the world uh, most immediately by taking this path. It's not an easy path. Mm-mm. It's very, very hard. A mm. uh, lot of sleepless nights, uh, but a lot of fun. Any advice for uh, other students that want to uh, get into business of space? Yeah, yeah. So there, I mean, there are a tremendous number of resources, uh, and there are also many, many ways that you can do it. We went down kind of a, a venture financing route, uh, which is one way to do it. That has you know pros and cons. Uh, other groups uh, choose more uh, traditional uh, grant funding or uh, smaller scale in investing, depending on what their goal is and how quickly they need to accomplish it to be successful. Um, so really, really knowing that uh, and just the canonical advice that everybody would give is you're going to if you're making a business, you're going to have a customer. Mm-hmm. And you want to talk to as many of those potential customers as you can, uh, as early as you can, uh, because even even when we were starting, we we had a different idea about how it would Very work different. out. Uh, and it didn't along the way. It's it's been at times just a random walk uh, to where we ended up uh, and making it <laughs> taking away as much randomness as you can will of course help you get there faster. Yeah, kind of taking off from what Kyle said is uh, if you have an idea. Don't be afraid to let it change as mm. you try and build something just because you might find out that your particular idea of how the world works or, or how, how you want space to be may not be something that everyone else is on board with. So you may need to tweak it, shift it, do something to finally get something that, that people are looking for. I want to thank both of you for being with us today on Into the Impossible from the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination here at the University of California, San Diego. The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three, two, one.